Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 49 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Spencer's in conversation with the artist, photographer, and geographer, Trevor Paglin. What are you guys talking about? So Trevor's an artist I have long admired and first saw an exhibition of his work in Mexico City that really focused on surveillance. He's a rare artist in that he also has a PhD in geography. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to kind of bring and merge these interests together in both making pictures and understanding the landscape through a geography. This is someone who talked to about time and space. Exactly. And we get into that. We talked about time and space through outer space, through deserts. Really, his work's about making phenomena visible and understood. A project that we talk about that I especially like is this uh, series he did where he went and photographed NSA underwater Mm -hmm. cables. Mm -hmm. He actually learned how to scuba dive to take those pictures. Really, his work's about seeing the unseen. Right, like this is the internet, and actually this is the cables that carry this data across the world. The internet isn't some Mm -hmm. vapor. Yeah, and even some of the pictures are just photos of like an everyday beach. So yeah. you just see like people on a beach, you're like, what is this? But actually, it's the exact point in the beach where the cables connect. <laughs> so it's really this notion of, yeah, seeing the unseen. He's, he's done and work. And his work also, sorry, is just incredibly beautiful. So you stop to look at it mm-hmm. and there's meaning beyond the image. But on its surface, I mean, his work is also exquisite to mm-hmm. look at. Yeah, and he has a really art historical lens. He's done a series on the American West. Mm -hmm. One of his latest projects focuses on artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. and pictures of flowers. So he's constantly understanding that all art is a conversation across time Mm -hmm. and, and sees his work very much within that. Let's get to it. This is Spencer and Trevor. Hi, Trevor. Welcome to Time Sensitive. It's so great to have you in the studio today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's a beautiful studio you got. I wanted to begin on the subject of space, okay? specifically time and space. And I'm clearly starting here because this notion of space in your work carries many different meanings. And I was wondering what immediately comes to mind for you when you're thinking about the relationship between time and space. Well, when you say the word space, then I I immediately think about it in two ways instantly. Obviously, there's outer space that I've done a lot of work with. And then, you know, I I have a background also in geography in addition to art. And so there's a conception of space Mm -hmm. there, which means something completely different. So when you specifically ask about time and space, I go to the geography side of it. And one of the things that's interesting is that you don't really make a distinction between the two <laughs> when you thinking in, in that geographical sense. 
And what I mean by that is that space is always in flux and that those fluxes have a temporality to them. They have different temporalities to Mm. them. So when you think about space, you don't think about it as a fixed static thing. You think about it as a kind of like breathing, undulating thing. And you think about time in the same way. So time is not necessarily linear. My friend Rebecca Solnit had a beautiful way of putting it where she said, we can think about time as a river and there is an overall flow to it, but it has, you know, little eddies and whirlpools mm. and, and, and tendrils that it makes as well. And so I guess at a very high conceptual level, <laughs> that's my answer, but I'm sure that's not particularly revealing. Well, I, I do want to get into talking about outer space and then we'll get to sort of Earth space. (laughs) For this project, The Last Pictures, which you did in 2012 with Creative Time, you sent this time capsule up into deep space aboard the Echostar 16 satellite. And there were these images etched on a silicon disk chronicling human history from the Lascaux Caves all the way to political protest. Let's start with this satellite, Echostar 16 itself, which is a part of a series of transportation communication technologies that have, as you've written, quote, in a relatively short period of time, fundamentally altered our relationship with time and space. Could you speak a bit about the evolution of these technologies and, and in the context of that project? Okay, so th- these are great, huge questions. <laughs> Multiple <laughs> barreled, I understand. Each one deserves a book. Um, I was talking before about how time and space are you know, blended into each other. And it's very hard to distinguish between the two sometimes. So material things have temporalities built into them, right? So if you think about something like nuclear waste, that it has a temporality built into it. It has, you know, a decay rate and, you know, you're creating something that is poisonous that will be poisonous for hundreds of thousands of years into Mm -hmm. the future. So that sense of time is baked into the material. And that's true of, of materials in general. So the last pictures project was inspired by a series of conversations that I had with a um, amateur orbital analyst mm. in Toronto, a guy named Ted Molson, who tracks spy satellites with with a pair of binoculars from his balcony. He's a part of a group of about a dozen people or so around the world who do this kind of thing for a hobby. I was hanging out with him once in in Toronto, and. I was interested in the decay rates of satellites. So satellites, when you when you put them up in orbit around the Earth, they decay at some point. And the reason for that is that there's no really hard line that separates the Earth's atmosphere from space. The atmosphere just kind of gets thinner and thinner and thinner mm-hmm. as you, the further out you go. And so as a satellite orbits around the Earth, there's small amounts of drag that those you know little particles of you know atmosphere exert on it. So I was doing calculations on these and I was started looking at geostationary satellites. And these are satellites, mostly communication satellites and signals intelligence satellites that orbit around the Earth at the same exact rate that the Earth itself rotates. Mm. So when you have like satellite TV and you put a dish up outside your house, you point it at a specific spot in the sky, there's a satellite at that spot in the sky. And the reason that satellite can sit there is that it's orbiting the Earth at the same rate that the Earth rotates. When you do the calculation for what is the decay time of a geostationary satellite, which is those are 36,000 kilometers away. They're much, much further away than, you know, imaging satellites and things like that. Uh, the number you get is infinity. And and I looked at that and I was like, 
what the hell does that mean? Does, does that mean that these don't decay? And so I asked Ted that and he said, yeah, they don't, they don't decay. And in fact, you know, their so-called end of life maneuver is sometimes to go even further away from earth into what's called a, a, a graveyard orbit. Mm. And so, you know, the, I guess the geographer in me was thinking, well, if they don't decay, you know, there's no geomorphic forces in space. You know, there's no erosion, there's no rain, there's no tectonic activity. So that means that these are potentially and probably the longest lasting objects that the humans will make. And so I started immediately thinking about a distant future in which the humans are all gone and, you know, or just maybe a small layer in, in, you know, some geologic strata. And, but that there would be this ring of, you know, dead robots, basically, mm. that would be, you know, like the, our, our legacy in terms of, you know, our you know, contribution to the planet or whatever. And, and I, so I thought, well, we should, these are monuments in a way. And, and, you know, they are, monuments of a, of a particular mm. moment in history and in a particular relationship to the earth with the last pictures it was an attempt to acknowledge that so it wasn't so much a an attempt to kind of tell the story of the human so much as to create a kind of impressionistic vision of these these kinds of contradictions right an impressionistic image you know that perhaps suggested that the reason why these spacecraft were there maybe had something to do with the fact why the humans were not there anymore <laughs> mm. <laughs> in the distant future. So that gets us to what your original question was about the role of communication technologies mm -hmm. on the other side of it. You know, when we're looking at satellites, they have these extremely long histories projecting forward into the future. But at the same time, these are very much instruments of temporality in the sense of facilitating communication between people across the world at, at very rapid speeds, facilitating production and organizing activities at very high speeds. And so in the opposite sense, they're a, a technology of speed mm -hmm. or a, a technology of folding distant spaces into each other, if mm. you want to think about it that way. I mean, what's fascinating to me among many things about that project is this notion of these cave paintings from so long ago being projected so far into the future. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely obsessed with cave paintings. And I guess for me, they're a really interesting way to pose the question of what is an image. You know, obviously, as an artist, that's a question I'm obsessed about. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> what are these things that we make? And the reason cave paintings are so interesting is that they're case studies of images that have become detached from history, right? They've become detached from the contexts under which they were made. They've become detached from the stories that um, led to their making. And it's funny when you look at the you know, history of the interpretation of cave paintings, <laughs> it's just like whatever was in the zeitgeist at that moment. That's if you look at the 50s, it's like patriarchal and hunting and this and that. And you look at the 60s and, you know, it's oh maybe people were doing drugs and you know, maybe doing this and that. And so you see these, you know, changing interpretations <laughs> over time. And I, I think nowadays the... If you read contemporary literature on cave paintings, they say, you know, we, we have no idea. <laughs> you know, these are, these are essentially mirrors. That's not to say that 
they're meaningless or that they are well in a way they are nonsense but at the same time they feel like to me anyway like gifts mm-hmm. from our ancestors and mm. so that that's just a really interesting way to think about an image i guess mm. how does the anthropocene or the sort of moment of human made geologic consequence fit into this you know i, th- I think this, this is a very anthropocene kind of project people define anthropocene in a lot of different ways and some people say well it's always been the bacteria scene it's always going to be that <laughs> people mm-hmm. are not talking about the pyrocene what have you um i got interested in the idea from a geomorphologist a guy named peter half who wrote a article called neo-geomorphology that I was introduced to me actually by physical geographers when I was at, at UC Berkeley. And the argument that Half was making was that if you look at, you know, historical geomorphic forces, like what moves around sediment on the surface of the earth, you know, traditionally that's erosion, volcanism, plate tectonics. And you look at what's happening now, well, now it's like construction, real estate, you know, people moving stuff around. So the argument that, that he was making from a physical science perspective is that actually if you want to do geomorphology, you got to understand something about how real estate markets work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because that is now a, a geomorphic force that is, you know, moving more sediment around than plate tectonics. So this is a helpful way for me, I guess, to think about the ways in which the lines between the humans and nature are, are very complex and in fact don't exist. Mm. How did you select this particular collection of 100 images? What I actually did was I created a seminar <laughs> at Creative Time and got a, a group of like just a really diverse people and mostly graduate students. And we all just got together once a week and, you know, every week we would go and kind of research different kinds of images and then get together as a group and and talk about them and talk about you know not, not only the images but the the ethics of the project and just kind of thinking about what are we doing what kinds of things do we imagine that it's possible to say and what is it not possible to mm. say and how do we negotiate that line between on one hand, believing in a very fundamental way that images really don't mean anything once they become detached from history. So in in one hand, what we are doing is nonsensical. On the other hand, we are making a contribution to the future. And so there's an ethical imperative there. And, And how do we negotiate that on the other side? And so, you know, that's really how we you know, collected all of the images and we would vote on which ones we we thought were, you know, the best candidates. And, you know, at the at the end of the day I sat down with a, a group of about three or four hundred images that we kind of collectively, you know, vetted and then made the final selection. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it seems like such a massive, even preposterous kind of exercise. I'm wondering, did did you think of this work as kind of related somehow to this idea of the overview effect? Or how do you how do you capture the overview effect? Well, I don't know what that is. What's the overview effect? So the overview effect is something that astronauts say that they feel 
after a certain amount of time in space and upon circling the Earth, looking back down on it. And it creates this sort of awesome perspective that you can only get from being there. And it kind of connects also to what Stuart Brand was doing with the whole Earth catalog and showing this image of space and the idea of access to tools. And I know you've talked about the planet as a sensor. So I'm wondering, was that kind of thinking part of your process? Like, how do we provide another way of viewing the Earth? Yeah, so I, I I know that that point of view is is the God's eye view. I think there's yeah. other yeah. different a lot of different ways of talking about it. So here, where we get to this question of space and time again, what's interesting is that any collection of stuff that you make, any image, any cultural artifact that you make, is highly specific to the moment in time that you make it and to the cultural conditions that you make it under and to your own kind of situated relationship to the world around you, right? So it's hyper, hyper specific. Mm. On the other hand, as we look further in time into the past or into the future, the work that we want those cultural objects to do expands and expands and expands. So for example, if you look at, you know, cave paintings, People always want to interpret them as like, this is early man (laughs) or early humanity or whatever it is, right? You want to, there's a tendency to want to collapse all of human culture and knowledge into a a single figure, right? That that this artist who made this cave painting is somehow representative of the collective (laughs) conscious and unconscious of human history. And so also moving forward, the same thing happens, right? We knew that when we did this project, people were going to instinctively want to interpret it as, you know, trying to create some document of all humanity for the future or something like that, which is obviously an absurd proposition. We were super conscious of that. And it's funny, we dealt with that in the first image in the collection is a really purposely bizarre one, which is a photograph of the back of a drawing by Paul Clay called, um, it's it's written about by Walter Benjamin. Benjamin calls it the, the angel of history. Clay had a series of drawings of angels. And there's a famous essay by Walter Benjamin called The um, Thesis on the Philosophy of History, where he's writing about this angel. And he's talking about the figure of the angel of history is one in which the angel is kind of a figure of progress going mm-hmm. forward. And the humans are kind of following behind this angel of progress. And he says, we don't have to think about it that way when we look at this drawing. Perhaps the angel is actually looking back at us and what's propelling the angel forward in history are the explosions and the kind Mm. of violence of of the present. Perhaps the angel is being blown forward in history as a kind of recoil from, from the violence of the present. So by inverting that, (laughs) <laughs> it's such a specific image, you know, and, and I think that's what we were just trying to say right, right from the front. Like mm-hmm. there, there is a vision of history here, but it's the meaning of the image is, is so hyper-specific that, you know, that should be an indication as to the contingencies of everything that follows. Mm. 
More recently, following 10 years of development, you created Orbital Reflector, Mm -hmm. which was a reflective, non-functional satellite that went into low Earth orbit in late 2019. Its deployment got kind of bungled during the government shutdown, and now it's lost in space. Yeah. Could you talk about the trajectory of this project? I'm just it, it seems fascinating to to have spent so much time on it, to have actually realized it, to have launched it, and then to actually kind of see that it becomes lost and its original purpose maybe isn't able to be executed upon, but you're at least something happened. Yeah. Yeah. In a way it's very similar to the last pictures in the sense of I've I've always thought about space. And, and particularly the night sky as a kind of mirror, right? It, it's something that we create images of ourselves and then attribute them to the cosmos somehow. And that's true of Babylonian astrology, which is where the names of mm. many of the stars come from. You know, people would look at the stars and try to define the future. Same is true now, like the Hubble Space Telescope, whether they're up there trying to look at space and what, what are the questions? Where did we come from? What is the our place in the universe? Where is all of this going? The same questions. Then there's a cultural aspect to this as well. You know, in the, in the kind of American idiom, space is a myth of the frontier, right? The Star Trek, the final frontier. What, what do you do when you go to space? You, you go to the moon and you plant the flag on it. <laughs> Manifest right? destiny. Manifest destiny, exactly. Yeah. And then you think about mining, right? So this is Nevada. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> the moon is Nevada. <laughs> and so the Russian tradition is is, is really different. And, and that was one of the big inspirations for Orbital Reflector actually was a lot of the early work in aeronautics and astronautics was done by Russians. They got busy in the early 20th century, primarily inspired by a late 19th century um, Russian philosopher named uh, Nikolai Fedorov. And Fedorov has a crazy story. He um, had something that he called the philosophy of the common cause. And what he wanted to articulate was a vision of how societies should be organized and how people should treat each other. The tenets of his philosophy were that all human activity should be organized in the service of a higher purpose. Mm. That higher purpose should be, one, making ourselves immortal, (laughs) and two, resurrecting everybody who's ever lived. And in order to do that, we need to develop spaceflight so that we can go out into space and collect the particles of our ancestors that have evaporated from the earth so we can bring them back and reconstitute them. And once we've resurrected everybody who's ever lived, um, we're going to need places for them to live. So they're going to have to live on other planets as well. And so, you know, a lot of young <laughs> Russian you know, budding engineers are right. Let's get busy. <laughs> let's figure this out. You know, but what that translates into is a very different, mm. you know, sense of what space is right Mm. and you this is reflected in a lot of russian science fiction if you think about something like stanislaw lem or like solaris is obviously influenced by this kind of philosophy you go into space who do you you see your relatives right you see the the ghosts Mm -hmm. of your of your past and so 
That gives <laughs> like space time continuum a whole new meaning. Whole new meaning, right? But again, it's this mirror effect. And so Orbital Reflector kind of came out of that and was thinking about space as a mirror. And so I thought, well, let's build a mirror <laughs> you know, to reflect sunlight. And let's, I guess for me, the other part of the project, and this is also very influenced by Fyodorov as well, was to think about what what forms of production could look like if you detached them from capitalism, if you detached them from militarism. And then, you know, the entire history of spaceflight is, is one of the military, in, including now. I mean, SpaceX is a defense contractor. <laughs> so Starlink, by the way, that was the imaginative work of that. Can you think about aerospace engineering in a way that might be akin to when we talk about art for art's sake? Could you do aerospace engineering for aerospace engineering's sake? Mm. Can you then think about the politics of spaceflight on one hand? And then on the other hand, of course, like what are kind of conceptions of public space at this planetary scale? And so this is why the termination of of the, the project is kind of ironic. So what happened is we launched the rocket. And then it was a it was very small satellite. It's about ten centimeters by ten centimeters by thirty centimeters, about the size of a brick. And it was going to open up and deploy this huge mirror. And so when we came off the rocket, we were near some other satellites, and so we needed to do you know wait a little while for the satellites to drift apart, so that when we inflated, we weren't going to be in danger of endangering somebody else's satellite. And so we and we needed to get approval from the FCC to do that maneuver. And we had about six weeks to do it. That's what, you know, we had built the components to last for that long. You know, if you want to build everything radiation hardened, you just cost go up exponentially. And we thought, well, that's more than enough time. We don't need that. So we launch it and then Trump shuts down the government. Why? Because he's pissed off that they weren't funding this border wall. Right. And so now there's nobody at the FCC you can call. There's nobody at NASA you can call. There's nobody at the military that you can call. So you were in this limbo with the government shut down. In a way, it it became a kind of beautiful irony in the way is that this project that was trying to think about space on this planetary scale gets shut down by a government that is so dedicated to building a wall between here and Mexico that, you know, everything else has to stop. It's wild. I mean, on the subject of space, you've also spent a lot of time in deserts. Yeah. In the context of this conversation, how do you think about the desert and how does it compare to your considerations of outer space? Oh, there's so many different ways to approach the question. I guess one way that you can think about the desert, or we could just think about it in, in terms of like historically what the mm-hmm. notion, how the notion of the desert has been narrated in particular forms of, you know, American settler colonial histories, which is the desert is a wasteland. The desert is empty and you can go there and do whatever you want. You can strip mountains apart and create toxic landscapes from that. There's a kind of extraction that goes on there as well. The desert is a site of militarism. When you look at the, you know, a map of Nevada, you see there's huge military ranges. So they're the size of European countries, you know, in the Mojave Desert and the Basin Range in Nevada. And so when 
the Second World War starts, you know, these become these bombing ranges, bombing, 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 you know, military exercises. And then, of course, you get to atmospheric nuclear testing. You know, literally, you know, the most bombed place in the world is Nevada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, there's been you know, thousands of nuclear weapons that have you know, been set off there. So you get that sense of the desert as an other place, a kind of an outside place where the the rules of the rest of the society don't necessarily apply is both very old and has real political consequences, right? In terms of what kinds of activities are undertaken there and who uses that land for what, mm. right? And so we, we see that in the history of mining in particular. We see that in the history of, you know, military activities in particular. You see tons of prisons out in the desert. So it's a, it's a place where very much you find, you know, a lot of things that people don't really want you to see so much, right? And so that that's... One conception there. Now, if you go and talk to the Shoshone folks, they're going to tell you a completely different story about mm-hmm. the desert, of course. Like, I mean, that's a that's a very, again, colonial vision of the desert. So that's one way of answering the mm-hmm. question. There's many other ways of answering the question. Like, you see differently in the desert. Your perception changes really dramatically. And, and to me, that's one of the really magical things about about being out there is that there are places where there's a, a, a kind of silence that is almost otherworldly and your vision becomes very acute. When I spend time in the desert, I just become really intensely aware of the environment and the changes in it and the kind of undulations of it. It's a form of perception I don't think you really get. You know, I, I certainly don't get in a city at all. Mm. I wanted to mention this talk you gave once on Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty and where you said of time, if we start to think about time as a spiral instead of an arrow, we can start to imagine how changing the shape of any particular movement that we make affects the overall contours of time itself. I had to mention that quote. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I was just thinking... Could you speak a little bit to your time around Spiral Jetty and how did that shift your thinking at all about a landscape or about this idea of of a desert or time in a desert? I think it has to do with some of the ideas that we were talking about earlier in terms of our relationship to time and space and how these things are folded into each other and how spatial interventions we make are also temporal interventions political structures that we make also have a temporality to Mm. them. Things that we make travel forward in time with us, and they have a kind of velocity to them that can be hard to change. I'm just remembering when I I was given that talk about Smithson, I'd been to Spiral Jetty several times, and I had to write this talk. I was really confused. I was like, "How many?" You know? I mean, when I when I said I wanted to write about Smithson, you know, I, the people at D were like, "Oh, oh, really?" And I was like, "Wait, why is that problem?" I was like, "Oh, everybody's afraid to touch Smithson." I was like, "Okay, <laughs> just step into something that's going to be more complicated than I thought." Um, but my friend uh, Kate Crawford, who I've done a lot of work with, she was in Berlin at the time. She came over one afternoon. We just sat there and we were watching the spiral jetty film over and over again. And 
went back and looked at a lot of the stuff that he was reading, just some of the really pulpy kind of mm-hmm. science fiction, you know, even works about prehistoric art that he was looking at and trying to understand the kind of constellation of images and ideas that that were in the back of his mind going into that and started realizing that that there was this different form of temporality that he was thinking about in that piece. Yeah, that referenced George Kubler's The Shape of Time, which is a book I shockingly, even though I host a podcast called Time Sensitive, didn't know about. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's that. And then there was another, you know, I think he was getting stuff from from Bergson, either directly or indirectly mm, as well. Mm. I understand one of your earliest memories is a memory of the desert, or at least an imaginary memory of the desert. Could you speak to this experience or, or memory? Yeah. So I, I grew up in um, in the Air Force. And when I was really young, we were living in San Antonio, Texas. And then my dad was transferred to the Bay Area in California to Novato. And I remember we were going to drive from Texas to California. And I remember my dad talking about, oh, you know, we have to get a CB radio for the car because we're going to have to go through the Mojave Desert. And it just, in my mind, it was like this huge, expansive, hostile thing that we had to get from one side to the other. We needed to have this radio like in, like an astronaut so that we could, you know, get get help if if something were to happen now. And maybe it was more formidable at that time to drive across the desert. Now it's no big deal. <laughs> you know, but um but I remember just having that vision and there being something foreboding but also really magical and otherworldly about thinking about this journey. <laughs> You mentioned that you grew up or were raised on an Air Force base or a series of Air Force bases. Your father was an Air Force ophthalmologist, mm-hmm. and your mother was an Episcopalian priest. Yeah. You moved around a lot, as yeah. you mentioned, uh, from Texas to California. Your, your family also lived in Washington, D.C. for a time. And finally, at age 12, you moved to an Army airfield in Germany where you lived until college. What was it like to kind of be a military kid or traveling around like that all the time. References are so different, I guess, you know, Mm -hmm. on, again, there's a million ways to answer that question, but I did move around a lot. On one hand, you, when you're in the military, you get a very different sense of what the geography of the U S is than if you're living in the continental U S because there's, you know, bases in Korea and the Middle East and Germany and, you know, all over the world. And you're constantly meeting people that are coming from there. And so that you really do get a sense of the the footprint of the military around the world. And that becomes a part of the way of what you think about what the U.S. is, because it is right. And, you, you know, you don't, I don't think you would otherwise get that sense of mm. of that that global geography of of the of the U.S. moving around a lot. And this is something I really value. It's like you you get comfortable with being in different spaces. You get comfortable meeting new people all the time. And I guess like one of my takeaways is that it, you just made me really comfortable being in the world. You're really comfortable socializing with like a lot of different kinds of people. 
Mm. Right? The military is a very diverse place. On the other hand, you know, it's very authoritarian. And, you know, there's just if you're a, you know, teenager and you have, uh, you know, certainly someone like me, I just at some point I just couldn't handle it anymore. It's like, what the hell is this? You know, I'm just, uh, I, I can't deal with this. You know, the, uh, the kind of rigidity and the, the mm. kind of conformity that's very much a part of that culture as well. You know? Being surrounded by the military, quite literally, when did surveillance enter your consciousness? I, you know, surveillance is such a funny word. It's a, it's, it's, um, if I ever thought I had an idea of what it meant, I don't know what it means anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I've just been conscious, perhaps, I think maybe the personal aspect of that has to do with thinking about how you become to a certain extent and are treated according to ways that other people define you, right? And that is, you know, something that always felt very present to me and and perhaps even more my moving around a lot because I had a lot of different opportunities to present myself in different ways in different kinds of contexts. So I think I've always been aware of the fact that there's a kind of freedom that you lose when you are being classified, categorized, you know, tracked or surveilled, I guess, by others as a kind of general concept, but also as a specific context and in in specific ways, if you think about whether that's state surveillance or when you think about Google or, you know, Facebook or what have you, you know, how are you being classified? How are you um, being treated as a result of those classifications? What forms of evidence are being used in those classifications? And how does that impact your everyday life? Mm. And what, what are the costs of that? Right. And so it's a very squishy answer, but you know, mm. I think that. It was like osmosis. It was just kind of always there. I yeah, mean, I think so. Was art something that was on your mind? I, I know your grandmother was an artist, right? Yeah, my grandmother was an artist. Yeah. Art's always been on my mind. Um, some people you know, ask like, oh, when, when did you become an artist? And it's like, I've, I've always been an artist <laughs> you know, since, since I was a kid. You know, it's always just been a, part of what I did. And I never thought twice about that. It's um, just part of the way I am in the world. Mm. When did you pick up a camera for the first time? I am probably the first generation that kind of went backwards into photography in the sense that I was doing video first and then kind of reducing Mm. that, like cutting out, cutting out, cutting out, and then you arrive at photography. So the first time I shot with a still camera, I'd been shooting video for years by by that time. I think the first time where I really started to try to understand what the possibilities of, of still photography was, was when I was you know, spending a lot of time out in the desert. I was trying to think about how do you make images that, you know, speak to, you know, these, these kinds of things that we talked about before about that are going on and there's a nuclear testing and, you know, classified military experiments and prisons and that sort of thing. And I started 
using telescopes to try to look around the desert. Mm. And you would see this kind of mirages and heat and shimmering and then structures in the distance. This very impressionistic way of, of, of seeing that, that you get as a combination of just, you know, the strangeness of some of the activities going on in the desert combined with the strangeness of the atmospheric effects there. And I thought, well, I want to, I think you could make this an image, right? I think you could make these impressionistic images out of this way of seeing that I was trying to explore. And I reached out to some friends of mine who I knew were photographers. And I said, hey, can we you know, collaborate and want to build a camera that will fit on these telescopes and do this weird stuff. And they all just looked at me like I was nuts. And they were like, wait, what, why, why would you do that? Let's, how about no. <laughs> and um, so I thought, well, okay, screw it. I'll figure it out myself. Um, and then, so I got a camera. It was funny. I was studying for my qualifying exams at the time and I would just read books and take notes all day until my mind was just totally filled up. And then in the evenings, I would experiment with telescopes and cameras, and I was trying to photograph the airport in San Francisco from the top of my building at UC Berkeley. You know, and I thought that was about the right distances that I wanted to be able to to photograph it. And so, um, yeah, so I just did experiments for several years, really, before I started getting the hang of it. So I kind of had this weird hacky form of photography that I was using telescopes on. So I, I didn't even have like a lens <laughs> over the camera. And then again, just progressively started going backwards to now the point where I'm, you know, shooting eight by 10 film and, you know, very 19th century mm. styles of working sometimes. But yeah, so pretty much went backwards. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, you majored in religious studies what led you to that particular major? Yeah, so I studied religious studies and, and music composition. And I was studying continental philosophy, which in Berkeley is more in a, a program called rhetoric. What I got really interested in is different global forms of philosophy. And that's religion. I mean, that's not, you know, Descartes and, you know, Kant and something that, you know, the, the Western philosophers are a part of that, that literature of, of, you know, religious thinking or theological thinking. But when you are looking at the kind of big philosophical questions and how they've been posed, you know, by different cultures at different moments and the stories that have emerged from those questions, the vast majority of that is within, you know, kind of mm. religious context. And so I did a comparative religion degree and I guess that was to me what was interesting about it is just you're asking very similar questions to philosophy but you have this hugely more diverse body of thought and and cultures and you know traditions and stories for me it was just such a more colorful way of thinking about philosophical questions mm. And musical composition, I, I guess I should mention here, you, you had played in a punk band. Yeah, I was in a bunch of punk bands <laughs> and, and stuff. And also like, a thrash group I, um, <laughs> called Noisegate. Yeah, but I also wrote, you know, chamber music for, mm. you know, string quartets and mm. stuff like that as well. Um, and, that, and that's been fun. I've been able to reconnect with that a little bit the last few years because we've been um, collaborating with the Kronos Quartet out of San Francisco and doing a series of performances with them. And... Uh, that experience is, you know, become, it's useful in a way. And so I can read a score and kind of make notes about it. So that's yeah. fun. 
I kind of want to touch on this point because it seems like a really interesting transformative moment in your life. Like in, in Germany, you'd skateboarded, you, you became a vegetarian. During your Berkeley years, you had this sort of dreadlock mohawk cut off camouflage. <laughs> I don't know where you're getting this stuff from, but you've done a lot of, I do research. A lot of research. What did you learn through this experience? Like what did punk culture being a part of that kind of scene and, and world teach you? What was so exciting to me about like a, the kind of specifically Bay Area vision uh, of punk that was really influenced by a guy named Tim Yohannan, who started Maximum Rock and Roll, who started a, a club in Berkeley called 924 Gilman Street, where I worked for many years, was that for him, what punk was, was not so much a musical style and much more a way of creating space, right? So I'm mean, kind of planting the seeds of geography and what, what, what his vision was, was that punk is a, is a way of doing things. It's a way of trying to create spaces that are outside of the culture that corporations create for us. You know, can we as kids basically put together our club have other kids play and we just run the whole thing and create our own spaces and, and create, you know, almost these little, you know, autonomous zones. And can we find a vision of a different way of living mm. through that? And, and it doesn't matter what style of music is. What matters is what are the values that the musicians and the, the people creating that culture, what do they bring into the table? Right, so when we would have bands play at Gilman Street, I mean, there'd be huge. It would be hip hop bands and funk bands, and you know, just a, a huge range of things all the time. And um, that was just tremendously influential to me. I guess that that sense of, you know, what it means to create culture, what it means to create space. You know, what are the politics of that? What are the things that culture can do, particularly when you try to imagine detaching it from culture industries, I guess, for lack of a better word. Mm. Eventually you, you also got into what might be called surf culture. Um, you surf. Sure, um, yeah. <laughs> what have you learned through surfing as well? The two things that I kind of do outside of art is surfing and martial arts. And I think both of them, they're just so much the opposite of what I normally do. I mean, they're just, intensely embodied things, right? Where they are so much about being hyper, hyper aware of your circumstances, of the situation around you, reading it, reacting to it in a way that is not cerebral at all. And so I guess for me, you know, surfing and martial arts, are they're just a form of paying attention that is really intense and, and really, really different than, you know, the kind of Cartesian way of working that so, so, so many of us spend so much of our time doing. Mm. I guess for me, that's what's exciting about it, you know? Mm. You'd begun doing prison activism as an undergraduate and then from 1998 to 2004, worked on this project called Recording Carceral Landscapes, looking at the interiors of California penitentiaries 
wearing a concealed microphone, posing as a student of criminology. Would you say this was the beginning of your art making as we know it today? And tell me just a little bit about that process, because it's almost like being an undercover journalist somehow. You've really done your research here. I don't talk so much about that project, not because I don't like it, but I just, you know, it was still an early project for me. But yeah, so I was doing a lot of prison abolition work in the late 90s and early 2000s. I was working a lot with a group out of Oakland called Critical Resistance and was working with them to produce radio shows and media. And it was very, it was very functional. So I was like, I want to make art that, not even art, I want to make cultural stuff for the purposes of trying to change these politics. So super direct. It's like, this is not for museums. This is not for art galleries. Or this is art, you know, or cultural stuff that I'm making in the service of this cause. And it's going to respond to the needs of this community, 100%. And kind of in parallel to that, I was doing this project, this recording carceral landscapes project that was going to be more of an institutional kind of project. Mm -hmm. And so there was a little bit of an investigative side to that, which, you know, was, you know, something that has, has continued. And there, but there's also a way of thinking about space that, that was in, in that project. So mm. I was trying to think about, you know, in this broad sense, like how do you record a prison? But then you start asking, well, where, where are actually the walls of the prison? Right. You know, obviously there's the barbed wire fence, but then there's a company downtown that is issuing the bonds to build them. Right. There are neighborhoods where people are affected by prisons. You, you, when you start to ask, where is the prison? And you, you asked it in this more expanded sense. You, you start answering that question with the answer is like everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. You just don't see it. And so it's trying to think through that in that project and yeah, just in the in the broadest sense of making a series of recordings or, you know, was trying to create a a vision of I was trying to undo our conception of prisons like these are big hunks of concrete out in the desert or out in places and people go and are trapped there and trying to think about like what what are all the forces in society that are, you know, churning and working in different places and in different ways mm. to produce mass incarceration, right? Mm. What's going on in Sacramento or in courthouses? What's going on in the world of finance? What's going on, you know, in the, in culture, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you know, in the midst of this project, 9-11 happens. Yeah. Did this shift your perspective on that work, the whole work? If so, kind of how? Yeah, so 9-11 happens and what is the signature, the kind of like iconic institution of 9-11 is Guantanamo Bay. Mm -hmm. It's a prison, right? And so very quickly after 9-11, I started to see so many of the kinds of logics that I had seen in looking at the, the prison system in this expanded sense, like the kind of that racism, the kind of colonialism, the kind of violence, the kind of revanchism. And in in a way, seeing that starting to play out as an on a global scale. And then, of course, 
it also became quickly obvious that there was a network of secret prisons that the CIA was creating these kind of black sites where, you know, there were obviously these, they were torturing people and, you know, uh, disappearing people. And I started investigating that. And then some of the early interviews that I did talking about that work on CIA black sites, you know, I would say things like, yeah, well, here's Guantanamo Bay, but we have this other thing called Pelican Bay in California, mm-hmm. which is the California Supermax prison far in, in Northern California, where also you know, rampant torture was happening, you know, like disappearances, the same kinds of dynamics. And I, I think that was a little early for the war on terror conversation. People would like look at me like I was crazy. I was like, no, you guys, we've been doing this. <laughs> you know? um, but I, I, you know, I think in, in hindsight that there are a lot of homologies between, you know, those two things. Well, it strikes me, and I wanted to mention this because your your work has so much to do with what we might call the known unknowns of our world. And, of course, Donald Rumsfeld in 2002 famously talked about the known knowns. There are the things we know we know. <laughs> and, I mean, do you remember when he said that and and did that kind of strike you that 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 he talked about the world in in a way where he's saying there's also these unknown unknowns? <laughs> <laughs> I can't ever hear that quotation without thinking about the addendum that I think Zizek made to it, which is we also need to talk about the unknown knowns, which are our forms of ideology, what are the things that we believe mm. that we don't even know that we believe because they're so kind of ingrained. And, and to me, that even seems like the more poignant kind of question is like what forms of politics, what mm. forms of violence do we produce and reproduce in ways that we don't even know that we're doing it. Mm. Right. Mm. So, after earning an MFA at the Art Institute of Chicago in 2002, you, you go on to get a PhD in geography at Berkeley. And I was wondering, in what ways did this geography work and your time in the desert during these years shift your thinking around your art? And I say this sort of in the context that you've gone on to create what you've called preposterous things, impossible objects, experimental geography. Yeah, so um, I had started down this road of doing artworks that were, that had a lot of research that went into them. And I remember my advisor at the Art Institute, a really fantastic woman named Terry Capsalis, and one of the things that she would always underline in the work was she said, you know, you're going to, if you're doing work with plants, that work needs to be recognizable to a biologist, someone who's an expert in plants. They should be able to get something out of it that, you know, a lay person wouldn't be able to, then you know, has to be, you know, good from top to bottom. Right. And you can't phone it in, you know, in terms of, you know, the rigor of the, of the work. And at that time there was a lot of people, kind of playing around with those tropes, you know, the artist as anthropologist, the artist as sociologist. 
And the idea was that that artist would kind of adopt the persona of a social scientist or another mm-hmm. kind of field and, and do some artwork related to that. And and I thought, well, what if you just also were that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Why can't you be an artist, geographer, photographer? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Why, like, yeah. And so that was my motivation towards doing the PhD. Also, you know, I didn't have a way of make a living. So I thought, you know, I'll just go read books. That's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And uh, so I think then doing the PhD was just, it was just great to get that kind of training. Now there's like art PhDs and things like that. There wasn't at that time. I didn't even tell anybody except my advisor that I was doing art at the at the same time. And there's just a, a, a level of rigor that you learn. And just that question of how do you research something? That's not necessarily something that you can intuitively do. I mean, there's a craft to it. There's a lot of different crafts to it. And, you know, on on one hand, I was, you know, learning how to do that from the kind of social sciences perspective. But also at that time, you know, I was working 20 hours a day at the time. Mm. I was collaborating with a um, really a great friend of mine, a guy named A.C. Thompson, who's an investigative journalist. And we were working on the CIA Black Sites project together. And so I was learning so much from him about how how to do that investigative research, which is really different mm-hmm. than, you know, the more social sciences way of, of working. And so, you know, I have to credit him just as much as, as you know, my advisors at, at Berkeley in terms of being formative in teaching me different ways of trying to see something, mm. which is ultimately what all these things are, whether that's art or, you know, journalism or, you know, social science or comparative literature, what we're all trying to learn different ways of seeing. Right? Mm. This work, of course, has led you to all these different sites all over the world. What have been some of your more remarkable moments during these trips, whether it's I don't know. I imagine you've probably been accosted by some security guards or what, what have been some of the sort of strangest or, or most extraordinary things to happen while taking pictures in places you maybe shouldn't be, or in these very remote locations? I mean, there's a million stories (laughs) like that. Um, the one that immediately comes to mind is not one having to do with guards or anything like that, mm. but I did a project where I was trying to find all the undersea cables. So I had been working a little bit on the Ed Snowden project, and in that archive, there was a catalog of all the undersea cables that basically were owned by the NSA. And you could track them and be like, okay, here's this cable that's from connecting this town in California to this place in Hawaii to this place in, you know, Korea, what have you. And I, and I thought, well, these, this is a physical infrastructure. We think about that. That's something that's very clear when you start looking at the, the, the Snowden stuff. It's a, it's a description of a highly material, highly specific, mm-hmm. you know, planetary communications infrastructure. And I wanted to see it. I mean, that's what I spent a lot of my time doing is going out and trying to learn what things look like. So, I learned how to scuba dive in a swimming pool in Berlin and then you know, I had to then take that a little bit further and learn some stuff about 
underwater navigation and you know bathymetry and just a little bit about how the how the ocean works and how you you know, look at it from an underwater perspective and then started finding people that would you know, try to explore this stuff with me. And so we would go out in boats and I'd sort of have figured out, okay, if we go and dive here and do this pattern, we should, you know, intersect these internet cables because there's this rock formation here and the cable won't be able to go under it. So that should be a place where we can see the internet. And this is, you know, a lot of work to get to the point where you put yourself in a position to see something if indeed it's possible to see. Right. And, that, and that, that's a reoccurring theme in, in, yeah. in my I mean, work. I don't think most people realize looking at your pictures how much time has gone into making them. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's just a massive amount of work that goes in and a massive amount of preparation. And also what you don't see is the, the things that fail. And you're trying to see this thing and actually you just can't see it. But that, I mean, I think that mm. first time that I saw an internet cable on the bottom of the ocean was, you know, a very concrete example of that that process kind of resulting in you're seeing something that very few people have seen. And yet it is so fundamental to the way that, you know, society works, mm. you know, in, in many, many different levels. And of course, then being underwater, it's such a alien environment, you know, for lack of a better word that, um, that that's, you know, certainly one of the most sensorially mm. in a, in a way, intellectually gratifying moments of, of seeing, you know, that, I, that I've had, you know, but mm. there's many examples of mm. that. I wanted to discuss how your work also references something we've seen so many times, which are images of the American West and, you know, whether it's sort of loose references to Timothy O'Sullivan or Ansel Adams and how you view the work you're creating within the history of what they did and just sort of this history or notion of the American West. So I think about when you're making images, you're not, you know, we've talked about the fact that you're never making them in a vacuum. You're doing them in a historical context. You're doing them in a cultural context. You're doing them in a, a situated context about like, who are you specifically as a person? How are you seeing and how, how, how do your experiences shape that. But you're also in a conversation with your ancestors and you're in a conversation with your descendants, right? So there, there's, again, this temporal mm -hmm. axis, again, that, that has come up so much in our conversation. And whatever it is that you're looking at in the world, there's probably a history of other artists for hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of years of other artists who have looked at that same thing. So for me, a part of that question is, how have other people looked at this in the past? And how do their ways of seeing tell you something about that moment in history? And can you contribute to that Mm. You, 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 I almost, I almost think about it as a conversation. Be like, oh, hey, well, you know, O'Sullivan, you're looking at this landscape and about it this way. I'm looking at it this way. That's kind of interesting to see, mm. you know, the things that change and the things that stay the same and the kind of maybe forms of politics that are built into the ways of seeing that are, you know, crafted at different moments in history. So, yeah, I, I, I very explicitly and sometimes much more implicitly 
am referring to a whole history of different kinds of images and different ways of seeing mm. and in many ways trying to comment on that or participate in a conversation about that. Or yeah, about. I mean, there's even a sort of abstract or painterly quality to what you do. Um, I've, I've seen people reference your work in the context of J.M.W. Turner yeah. or Gerhard Richter. There's sort of this blurry nature of, of the work. Is that something you're actively exploring and kind of trying to find the bounds or the barriers between, say, what a Richter's doing and, and what you're doing with, with a camera? Yeah. The answer is yes, only, I mean, insofar as, you know, working a lot of different idioms, but, but one of the idioms that kind of comes up over and over again is the, you know, one in which you're almost like making a claim and then retreating from that claim at the same time mm. on, you know, you're making a claim in the sense that you're trying to see something about the world, but at the same time, you're always recognizing the fact that, that images are, are fragmentary and partial and, you know, frangible and delicate and actually ultimately meaningless as, as we talked about in relation to the, the last picture stuff. And for me, like creating objects or images in which all of these things can be true at the same time and and are evidently true at the same time. Those are the things that I, you know, get a lot of satisfaction mm. from in terms of, you know, objects that feel compelling to me. Mm. I wanted to finish with your longtime interest in the relationship between photography and artificial intelligence. You've done a range of projects in this space from ImageNet Roulette, uh, which some listeners may may recall, a viral selfie app, or or more recently Bloom. Yeah creating pictures of flowers out of artificial intelligence. Yeah. How are you thinking about AI right now in this context we find ourselves in? And by context, I also mean COVID-19. I yeah. mean, I mean the current technological space we're in. Yeah. I mean, I've worked on computer vision and AI for at least a decade at this point. And... I get angrier and angry about it, to be honest with you, because I, I have seen, you know, it's the limitations of it are so obvious and the consequences of it are also so ubiquitous and, and so consequential, I guess, that that I think a lot more people who are coming from a background in art or photography or the humanities in general, or even just like a kind of a, like have a kind of humanistic kind of critical mindset really need to be a part of these conversations because up until this point, those conversations have mostly been happening in, in an engineering context and a computer science context. And the assumptions that are made in those contexts would light your hair on fire you, you asked specifically about photography and you can think about, and I do think about computer vision as a genre of photography if you want to. And I think that's actually a very helpful way 
to think about it because it shifts the questions that you ask of it. And you think about what a computer vision system, it's a you know, video camera or sensor at some point making a series of images. I mean, you can, I, I think about video as photography. It's just making, you know, 24 images a second mm-hmm. or whatever. And then building a kind of automated interpretive framework to analyze those images, right? So in, in crude computer vision systems, that might be like, look for lines or squares or edges or shapes or what have you. But in more contemporary um, machine learning, you know, applications that might be recognize somebody's face or try to detect their emotional state by looking at their face, try to read their gender identity or what have you, or create a, a, a description of what might be happening in an image. And these are all applications that that people in, in computer vision are developing and deploying now. And I guess when you think about it that way, in the conversation about photography, we have a very long history and very well-developed set of conversations about questions like, what does it mean to interpret an image? What can an image actually tell you? What are the ethics of making images of people? What are the you know, politics of using them in different kinds of contexts? These are conversations that have been happening for a very long time and that we have really good ways of thinking about. And so I think that bringing that series of conversations to computer vision allows us to think really differently and I think in ways that are incredibly productive about what it is that we think we're doing when we're building, you know, AI and computer vision systems. And I think very quickly when you start applying those conversations from photography or art or really the humanities in general to, you know, these what are have historically been considered kind of technical systems, you realize that we have some problems here. Mm. (laughs) You You said that what I want art to do is help us see who we are now. Who do you think we are now in in this time of COVID nineteen and you know mass surveillance and AI excess in so many ways? And how does that compare to twenty years ago when you were starting to explore a lot of these things? Like in in your mind, I guess broadly speaking, what have been some of the larger shifts on the planet that you've seen through your own lens? I think that in, in, in a philosophical way, that's a really, really difficult question to answer. And so I'll answer it in a, in a more practical way that maybe is a little bit allegorical as well, which is that a lot of the images that I made in the early 2000s, I think are now impossible to make. And... Um, and I want to give a shout out to my friend, a photographer named uh, Will Matsudo, who, who said something I thought really poignant on his you know, Instagram post the other day. And he said, you know, it's gotten to the point where all landscape photography is photography of environmental change. And he's living in Portland. I thought that was just so insightful. And that comes back to when I said that a lot of those images of, of photographing with the telescope in the desert are not possible now because the desert's filled with smoke every summer. There is not a time now when that environmental destruction, you know, in, in the air 
is not present. That's new. Yeah, that's different. That's a change. Well, I guess we'll end there. Trevor, this was so good. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is really fantastic. And, and you've excavated a lot of <laughs> stuff here. And it's been really great to talk to you about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Listen to our other podcast, At a Distance, by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Tiffany Zhao, Emily Jang, Mike Lala, and Pat McCusker.